Uh, songs of the season. This is the Christmas season. And I told you last week, I had the opportunity to kick off the series, and I told you how, how much fun it is just to be able to hear. I mean, I think most of us have the Christmas songs we love, and most of us have those Christmas songs that, well, I'm not going to say we hate them, all right, but um, we have strong feelings about them. You like that? We have strong feelings. We don't want to hear them very often. We'll change the channel if that's the case. Um, but, but yet, this is one of those things I shared last week, that this is an amazing season, that the, the message and the gospel of who Jesus Christ is and that he came to this earth uh, is everywhere, across the world, with people who celebrate Christmas. Um, and he, whether they say Happy Holidays to you or Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah, I don't know what they say. But if, no matter what they say to you, no matter where their stance is sort of on the, the meaning of Christ and Christmas, uh, they're getting kind of hit with this message through these incredible songs of the season, especially that one we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, as we celebrate Advent, we want to make sure we know what it means. We had somebody ask last week, uh, Advent, we had our Advent candles out front. Uh, do we celebrate Advent? Is that something that we, is it a liturgy or something that we do? I'll be honest with you, as a church, we don't do that much liturgy at all. Um, but when we do things like Advent or like the wreath or, or some of the things I'm going to introduce you today, it's not for the purpose of a ritual or religious ritual or, or liturgy. It's really just more to help us all understand the incredible heritage we have in the Christian church and the Christian people. Um, we have a lot of history, guys, thousands, above thousands of years of history. And it's always good to know maybe why things are called the way they are, why we do things. Uh, the way we do them. I particularly love the Advent season. That's what it's called because it's about this, uh, the Adventus is the Latin. It's this expectant arrival or anticipation. And that's really the arrival and the anticipation of Christ, of Christ's birth, which is why it's called the Advent season, which is why they call them Advent calendars, right? I know yours got chocolate in them, but it's still Advent, right? That's what it means. Last week, we, we dove into a little bit of the prophecy scripture that, that kind of pointed towards the hope that is the good news of great joy for all people. Today, I want to dive a little bit more into the actual story, the, rec the recorded story of the, of the nativity, and kind of walk through, kind of pointing back again to where the song takes us and why Emmanuel was so significant in terms of the change of what happened at Christmas time. Uh, let's go to Luke. We're going to start with Luke. And I'm going to, again, read a lot of scripture this morning. We're going to walk through the story through several books and then um, just kind of talk a little bit about uh, the importance of Emmanuel in us. But it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to the virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her, greetings, the Lord is with you. Some translations just simply say, blessed are you among women. Confused and disturbed, I love both of those words, by the way, confused and disturbed, you would be too. Mary tried to think of what the angel could have meant by that, right? What did he mean? And he said, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. This is a lot of the language we used from last week in terms of the prophecy. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. 
And Mary asked the angel, well, how can this happen? Right? I am a virgin. I'm not married. I'm just a young girl. And the angel replied and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born, or baby uh, to be born will be holy and will be called the Son of God, set apart. And what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has now conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. Because she's basically saying, how is this possible? And he was going to say, well, you are going to be, it's going to be because of God. It's going to be set apart. It's going to be this miraculous thing. And he, he wanted to just kind of give her that proof of like, and your sister, your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant, you know? And uh, I think he said, yeah, uh, six months pregnant, or at least you see that. And it says it's possible. And it says, for the, for the word of God will never fail, for nothing is impossible to God. That's actually one of the translations. He just wants them to know, nothing, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And so here's Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Now, Luke's re recorded gospel, um, Luke recorded the gospel out of all the eyewitnesses, as many as he could find, as many as he could do. He was a doctor, um, and he also wrote Acts, the book of Acts, which is basically a journal and a chronological writing of, of the, the early church. Um, and so Luke's gospel, this chronological gospel, you'll notice in Luke, it's a lot of details, a man named, a man named Joseph, a woman named Mary around this time. Uh, it's a lot of details like that because he wanted to get the, the, the best accurate picture of the life of Christ. And so uh, we believe based on what we've seen that uh, he would have probably gotten this story directly from Mary, right? He would have gotten this account directly from the source in terms of Mary's encounter and how Mary responded. Now I'm going to jump over to Matthew and Matthew's account, just to let you know, Matthew wrote his account in Hebrew, okay? Not Greek, not the common language. He wrote it in Hebrew because Matthew's heart was for the Hebrew people, it was for the Jewish people. He wanted the Jewish people to connect the dots between the prophecy of what was expected in terms of the advent and the coming of Jesus. You'll notice that, that Matthew gives more of a summary and kind of hits some things specifically that he wants the, the people of the Hebrew people to see. So here's Matthew. He says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, she was still a virgin. She, came, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's all you get is a sentence from Matthew, all right? Out of that whole account in Luke, you get a sentence from Matthew. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now, why is this important? Well, Matthew wants, again, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, which was a very male-dominated society, like it or not, that's what it was, and he wanted them to understand that even though Joseph was the, the, the descendant of King David, he was going to be through his line. Now, this was still something miraculous that was going to happen. And so Joseph needed to be a part of the equation. That was part of the prophecy. Even though it was going to be this miraculous birth, this was part of the story of, of, of him being born. And so as he considered this, this was him considering divorcing his wife because she shows up pregnant. It says an angel of the Lord that appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message 
through his prophet. You'll notice this in the Gospel of Matthew, that a great deal of Matthew's account of Jesus has a lot of Old Testament references. <laughs> you know, he's constantly pulling in prophecy and Old Testament references that Jesus would state to try to, again, try to help connect the dots for the Jewish people who missed Jesus, like who missed him. They didn't understand. But here's what he does. He pulls from Isaiah 7, 14. He says, look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him. Now, this is not where they say Jesus. That's in the New Testament. It says they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This was their way of helping them understand even the Hebrew prophecy 700 years before the birth of Christ. He says, I want you to understand that a virgin is, this is all to fulfill the prophecy that a virgin will be born and his name will be Emmanuel. So when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, or commanded to do, and took Mary as his wife. Again, you look at that and say, well, there's you know, two different lenses of the story. Well, it's the same story. Matthew, of course, is telling the story with a lot of importance and a lot of, 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 uh, of highlighting the aspect of why the prophecy mattered. Why did it matter that Joseph was in the story? Why did it matter that he was a descendant of King David? Why did it matter that he didn't leave Mary, but he continued to take her as his wife? And that it wasn't so hard to believe that a virgin would give birth to a child because you were written by your, you know, your, the, one of the greatest prophets of all time. You, she told us that a virgin was going to conceive a child. That's why this happened. And he helps Joseph connect the dots, as again he wanted to do for all of them. Well, we jump back to Luke, because Luke again has a little bit more of the details of the story, just because of the nature of how Luke uh, interviewed and kind of did it. This goes into Luke 2. It says, then at the time of the Roman emperor, Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. First time this has happened in a while. And this is all returned to their own ancestral town to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, again, important information, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. So he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, last week we read the rest of that, which was the moment this happens, you know, it's just Mary and Joseph and some animals there in the manger, there in the cleft of a rock on, on the bed of hay, very, very mild and meek. Um, in the meantime, in the mountains beside them, <laughs> This huge vast of angels show up. We got to go back last week and see what it read. This huge vast of angels show up to declare that Jesus has been born to the shepherds and basically tells them, I mean, you know, as meek and mild as this moment was for, for I mean, not to say that that was pregnancy for you ladies. Sorry about that. It's not meek and mild at all. We talked about that last week. Chaotic. But in terms of, you know, no audience, no, you know, there was no, you know, a lot of pictures show a big holy lights coming from the sky. I mean... It just was what it was. But in the meantime, there is a declaration in the heavens declaring that Jesus has been born. Tells the shepherds you'll find him in this manger, in this lowly manger wrapped in cloth. And then they go to see, and they go see what happened. And then they go tell everybody 
about it because they, because they couldn't believe that what they had been promised finally came to light. I want to go back because our focus today is going to be, again, as we looked at the song, our focus today is going to be that, that passage in um, Israel, or sorry, in Isaiah, where he uses the phrase Emmanuel. Because up to this point, when you read the New Testament, it's, it tells you who Jesus is going to be, but every once in a while they would say they're going to call his name Jesus. They're going to call his name Jesus. And in the prophecy here, it specifically says the virgin's going to conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, and you will call him, what's the word? Yeah, Emmanuel, right? But Emmanuel was this Hebrew word that said God with us. That's what it meant. And Matthew, again, wanted to help them understand. Now, in some of the translations in Matthew, by the way, it is an E, Emmanuel, versus I, Emmanuel. Now, go ahead and just let you know for all the nerds in the room, um, that is not because the words are different words. The word's the same word. It's a transliteration of either the Hebrew root, which is the I, versus the Greek root, which is the E. Everybody with me? That's the only school you're going to get today. Okay, that's it. So... That's the reason it's O come, O come, Emmanuel, because that's where, you know, majority of people are going to use the, the, the uh, transliteration of the, of the Greek word. So O come, O come, Emmanuel is the same as Emmanuel. It's the same word. It means the exact same thing. You shouldn't get lost over that. When it comes to the song, it was fascinating to do the research on it because the song itself, um, really, they can point it back to almost the ninth century, Right? almost all the way back to the ninth century in terms of what they saw in Latin antiphon, all right? Now, I'll tell you what an antiphon is in a minute because I had to study and figure it out myself because I didn't know. But, it, but the lyric, the song, the melodic song we hear today really showed up in the, in the uh, uh, appendix in 1861 and in the, in the hymnal of called Hymns Ancient and Modern. It was just in the appendix there. This actually melodical tune put to these... Uh, to this Latin antiphon, and an antiphon is basically a lyrical chant, okay? It's a lyrical, I was wrong about the schooling, I'm going to give you a little bit more schooling, okay? The antiphon is a lyrical chat, uh, chant, usually read before or after a psalm, going all the way back to the monasteries, monastic times, okay? And, and there was an actual ritual, a tradition, a liturgy, where they had what they called the seven antiphons that they would recite all the way up to Christmas Eve. So seven days before Advent, before Christmas Eve, they had seven antiphons that they would recite every day. And every time they gathered, it would change every day, leading them all the way up to the night before Christmas Eve, the night before Advent. I just want you to see what they are, right? And this is what kind of made up the song. This is the root of where the song came from. It's from this kind of chant, you know, liturgy from the monastery of them saying these antiphons, this O uh, Sapentia, right? Wisdom, that's what it means. O Adonai, the Hebrew word for God. O Radix Jesse, the stem or the root of Jesse. O Clavis David, key of David. O Oriens, dayspring. O Rex Gentium, king of the Gentiles. All culminating in O Emmanuel, God with us. And I just found that fascinating to me that they that here's this beautiful song that many of us know and we sing that has such a huge history in the church 
All right, and I know that most of us, we don't, you know, we, we don't do the liturgy and the Latin and the, most of us were not raised Catholic. And even if you were, you were not raised this kind of Catholic. I just, I know that. Okay. I know that's true. Most of you are just as confused as I was, right? But the reality is, is that before there was, you know, denominations, before there were churches, there was just the church, right? It was just the church. And all the way back to this point, everything they did was pointing to God, so this beautiful, these beautiful chants, these beautiful, oh, wisdom, oh, God, oh, key of David, oh, um, stem of Jesse, the, uh, the great O's is what they called them, was all pointing their heart to Advent, the coming of Jesus. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Because the significance was going to be on that statement, Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. There's so much in Scripture where God is many things, right? I mean, there's so many things we can announce in terms of characteristics, in terms of names, in terms of accomplishments. But in this moment, in the Advent season, we're reminded of something so significant that this was going to be a moment where God was coming to us, that God was going to be with us. And as I prayed about this and kind of was thinking through this, I'll just be honest, it was so encouraging and yet also so discouraging in terms of what I see in our culture, even within sometimes Christians in our culture, operating in a way in which they don't necessarily operate that God is with us. Now again, I told you about the Gospels. Matthew uh, records his to the Jewish people. Luke does the interviews with Mary and the eyewitnesses and the disciples and records kind of very chronologically and very detailed the report. You got the Gospel of Mark, which doesn't even mention his birth. Isn't that great? The Gospel of Mark, he just jumps right into his baptism. Now, we believe Mark, basically we believe Mark is the Gospel of Peter, meaning that you know, most of this would have come from Peter. So he doesn't even start with the birth. He goes right into the baptism of Jesus. And then you got the Gospel of John. And John, I call John's like the crazy old disciple, right? And he, he, he doesn't follow any of the rules, right? He's his own guy. He's standalone. And he decides he wants to share about the life of Christ. He even tells us at the end of John, like, I can't even, there's volumes and volumes of books I can't write about what Jesus did. So he decides to write his account in a very thematic way, a very, you know, very, a lot of imagery being used. And he talks about the birth of Christ all in imagery. He doesn't talk about Mary or Joseph or what was going on. He talks about the significance of what it meant. This, this moment, this, this God with us change that was getting ready uh, to happen. And, I, and, and in light of that, I love looking back at John 1 and seeing some of the words he uses. I want you to see this. He says, at the beginning, the word already existed. The capital W in the word was talking specifically about Jesus. And it said the word was, read those two words. What is that? The word was what? Yeah, the word was with God. And the word was God. That's both, both of those things are significant. But the idea here is John saying, this is how it works. You know, he was already in existence. The word was with God and the word was God. And he goes on and he says that he existed in the beginning with God. Keep going. God created everything through him, through Jesus, through the word. Nothing was created except through him. 
The word gave life to everything that was created in his life, brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness, right, to tell about the light. And it says, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's, that's the, this is the imagery that John wants to give us, that, that even though the light, the word, Jesus Christ himself was, was here since the beginning, he was with God, he was God. He gives light and life to everything. He gives light and life to everyone. Here's the exciting news, guys. He was coming into the world. And if you skip down to verse 14, he says, the word became human and made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we get to see his glory. We've talked about me and the disciples and the witnesses. We've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This was his sort of witness testimonial of we've got to see and experience this. But don't take away the fact that, I mean, don't miss the significance of John basically saying that, guys, there was something that happened here, right? The word was with God, and he was there since the beginning, and he gave life to everything. But something significant happened in this moment because he made his home among us. He became human. And now he was truly Emmanuel, which is God with us. If you were raised in the church, I just want you to understand that you have to kind of work to cultivate the astonishment of that. Because I was raised in the church. I was in the church since before I was born. And, you know, if I, you know, even though I didn't really understand everything as a kid, and, you know, I think I asked Jesus in my heart about a billion times or something like that, you know, kind of didn't really understand the security of salvation until I was, I think, almost 11. I think I was 10 or 11 years old. And then that's when I got baptized because I kind of, kind of clicked for me, kind of understood, you know. Who knows which one of those billion times I got saved, but I finally understood it in hindsight around 10 or 11 years old. But now for me, the idea that God was with us, God's around, God's here, he's present, was always there, right? And so if you were raised in church, that's kind of the way you think. God was never, you know, never not there. But if you start having conversations with people who were not raised in church, matter of fact, if you have conversations with, with people that di didn't even have a legacy or a heritage, which means there was no grandma that, that, that talked about Jesus. There was no, you know, parents or grandparents or people in their life that actually kind of brought the light in. When you start talking to them, you realize that the idea that God is with us was not even something close to what they understood. And even for people that have it around them, they don't really get it. Here's a great example. Every depiction of every TV show or movie or something where, you know, the person who's struggling cries out to God in a moment of, of, of weakness, cries out to God in a moment where he's struggling, it's always this idea, right? You, you, you can remember this. It's like always this idea that there's this Hail Mary kind of prayer thrown up, right? Like, if, if God, if you're real, if you're out there, 
You know, like we're just tossing it as far as we can, hoping it breaks through the heaven, you know, that it kind of gets through the veil. If God is real, if he exists. And most people that see God this way are not living in such a way that they actually believe that God is with us. Oh, they believe there's a force. They might believe there's an entity. They might believe there's a, there is a God, but he's not personal and he's not present. He's distant. He's disconnected. And that honestly is such a tragedy to see. But yet again, for maybe for some of those who grew up in the churches, it's kind of just all you know, you know? Now, now that's a blessing. I want you to see that's a blessing. But boy, do we need to just make sure we understand the, the truth of what's happening in, in this season is that it's a reminder that God is with us. That he's not distant. He's not disconnected. But what does this cause? Okay, let me just go back to what does this cause? Well, it causes, it really kind of causes religion. Okay? And I want to just kind of help you see this. Every, right, every religion or religion in every civilization for centuries has tried to figure out how do we close the gap between the God who is distant and disconnected and is out there to who we are, to how we function. And so religion in itself is this constant need to answer the question and to solve the riddle, how do we get to God, right? How do we get to him? Like, do I live a certain way? Do I have to act a certain way? Do I have to do certain things? Do I have to follow certain rules? Do I have to, you know, serve him? Do I have to do these things? And it doesn't matter. I'm just letting you know. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, ancient, you know, uh, you know pagan idols in the Old Testament where they would, you know, craft an idol to the pantheon of gods, whether it was the Roman pantheon of gods or the Greek pantheon of gods. Like, it doesn't matter. Every religion... Right? Religion in every civilization for centuries, they exist to try to close the gap. How can we be right with God? How can we get to him, to that force, to that entity, to that thing that we don't understand? And believe it or not, this is actually what the Jewish people were struggling with as well. When Jesus shows up on the scene, Judaism was just another religion that had sort of lost its heart. It was liturgy, it was ritual, it was kind of check the boxes, dot the I's. You know, if we do these things, we sort of stay right. We sort of stay in the rightness of God's people. I mean, they definitely had no problem with exclusion because they were God's people. But, but the religion itself was just there to kind of like dot the I's, cross the T's and make it happen because that was their way of trying to close the gap. It was their way of trying to close the gap. And yet even Jesus recognized it. Matter of fact, I love this particular paraphrase from uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message. Just to help you understand, the message is not necessarily a translation or transliteration. It's a, it's, a, it's a paraphrase from the root and from the Greek and Hebrew. It's a paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson for his kids. It actually obviously is now a much bigger deal, but he wrote it initially just for his children. But I love the paraphrase, the way the paraphrase of this set of verses comes out when Jesus says, are you tired, worn out? Look at this phrase, are you burned out on religion? Jesus is asking the Jewish people this. He's asking his, the people who are supposed to be God's people. He said, are you tired of this? 
See, you're missing the heart. And then Jesus helps connect the dots. Again, I think Jesus was just trying to help them understand, bringing, bringing God to them, bringing God with us, closing the gap for us. He says, I want you to come to me. I want you to get away with me to recover your life. And I'll show you how to take a real rest. Watch the rest. It says, I want you to walk with me and, and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. You know the translations about I won't put any, you know, it's about ox and heavy burdens. I won't lay any heavy burdens on you. He said, I'm going to put anything that doesn't fit. He says, keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I love, again, the paraphrase because it's all this personal language, right? Aren't you burned out on you trying to close the gap because you can't close it? Aren't you burned out? And then reminding them the heart of the gospel, which is, no, I'm here. Come, just come to me. Walk with me. Lean on me. Trust in me. Watch how I do it. I'm not going to give you something you can't wear. I'm not going to make you try to figure out how to close the gap because I came to be with you. That's what God with us means right? That's this beautiful, beautiful picture we get in the Advent. I was reminded again this week, I'm leading a, a, a starting point group for some of the folks in our church. We're just going through some of the foundational teachings of the scriptures. And we were looking, our first week is just a great reminder. I'm going to read some of the passages for you. But our first week was talking about Paul addressing the, the, uh, the people of Athens, the Greek people of Athens, about who this God was. He, he walked around the city and the village and he saw that there was a, they had altars to everything and pagan gods and all sorts of pantheon of gods. And they, they sort of felt like they had everything covered. They even had a, a, an altar to an unknown God, which I think is hilarious, right? Because it's just like, it was the just in case one. Remember? It's the just in case one. But then he has an opportunity. He has an opportunity to share with the leaders and with the, the kind of the higher ups about the person of Jesus that he'd been sharing. And so he decides to take the opportunity and say, I want to I tell you who this unknown God is. I want to make him known. And then just watch what he says. Again, trying to help them understand the, the difference between this, this personal God who came to be with us versus the religion, versus this practice to close the gap. He says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't actually live in man-made temples. So you guys got temples everywhere trying to figure out how to, again, close the gap between you and God. But he doesn't live in man-made temples because he made everything. And human hands can't serve his needs for... Oh, these are great four words. Just read them out loud. Now, let's just read them out loud together like we all, you know. Ready? He has no needs. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like your life isn't about serving God who has to meet needs and close the gap. Close the gap by meeting his needs because he doesn't have needs. Matter of fact, he himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. That's who he is. <laughs> From one man, he created the nations throughout the world, the whole earth. And he decided beforehand that they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Just talking about God's sovereignty. I'm going to switch over again to the, to the paraphrase 
for the last two verses. He said, he made the entire human race and the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so that we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually, what's the words? Yeah. Not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. (laughs) He's not remote. He's near. And we live and move in him. We can't get away from him. We can't get away from him. So this is, this is really, just really where it hit me this week was the idea that what does it mean that God is with us? That he's with us. I mean, just, I want you to think the personal. I don't want you to, I mean, he obviously changed it to where we no longer have to lean into religion or spirituality or practices to try to close the gap, try to align our spirits with, with some cosmic spirit. That's not, that's not even our role. It's a, it's a weight and a burden we can't handle. But what does with us mean? It means that we really can't get away from him. Okay? You really, you really can't get away from him. Why? Because he went on to say, this is what it's like. Because if you don't know him, and I'm just sharing this with you personally today, if you do not know him, if there's no personal relationship at all, he's still here. He's still near. Oh, you're groping around in the dark. That is what you're doing. All right? You're grabbing a hold of anything of promise that you think you can grab to try to meet the need, to try to close the gap, to try to, in some way, shape, and form, give your life purpose. And what Paul said, which I love, is that, yeah, he's not playing hide and seek with you. (laughs) Number one, there's a reason you're here today. There's a reason you're watching this later. Like, God is not playing games. He is near. He is there. You're supposed to be able to reach out and touch him. Which is why, quite honestly, he he, he helped us understand in Peter that he's not rushing to come back. All the people, all the end of times people that are just like, oh, Lord, please come back. Oh, God, please. Like, he's patient. He doesn't want anyone to suffer. He wants everyone to hear the gospel repeatedly. He wants people to have opportunities to come to the absolute hope of Jesus. That's what he really wants. But the reality is, is that the words of Paul to help us understand how close he is, even for those that are groping in the dark, means that on judgment day, there are no excuses. It's not as if you didn't hear. It's not as if you didn't, you didn't know. Oh, you rejected him. You tried something else. You thought for sure you had the answer, but you didn't. Which is why there won't be any excuses. Because even in the dark, groping around, the point of him coming to be with us is that you're not going to get away from him. He's right there. And for those of them, for those of us that know him, for those of us that that have surrendered our life to him, for those that follow him, this Advent season should be this very quick, very stark reminder that we do not follow a God who's distant and disconnected and requires these sort of Hail Mary, if you're out there, if you're listening, if you care at all, prayers. I sometimes will tell our children, and I've taught this before, that when we pray, one of the, what are the reasons you close your eyes when you pray? Do you even know? Did parents ever tell you why you close your eyes when you pray? No? Well, yes, it's to be reverent. Yes, that's part of the, part of the process. You would do this out of reverence. You also do it, parents know this, to, to eliminate distractions, right? Because you all know that when you tell your kids to close their eyes, they do, and then one eye goes, 
pops open like that, you know. They can't concentrate on anything you're saying because their, their eyes partially open. They can see when your eyes are open looking at them, and they're like, Dad, why are your eyes open? I tell this to sometimes that people just need to hear it. Like, guys, the reason we close our eyes and we bow our heads in prayer is, boy, it should remind us that God is present. We pray to a God that's right here. He's not distant. He's not far. He's not disconnected. He's not away. He's, he's closer than your skin. He is ever present with you. So when you close your eyes and bow your head to pray, it should be a reminder to you. You're not, you're not lofting Hail Mary prayers into the, into the ether. You are just connecting with a God who is with you that you cannot get away from. And yet so many Christians, I mean, just think about this season. So many Christians right now are facing marriage issues as if they're alone. They're facing financial issues as if they're alone. They're facing isolation and loneliness because of the pandemic and because of other things as if they are alone. They're facing loss and tragedy and grief as if they are alone. And yet that is not the message of Jesus. That is not why he came. From the prophecy, 700 years, to the Matthew reality of the gospel, the, the virgin's going to conceive a child, and we're going to call him Emmanuel because something's going to change. As John said, the light that gives light to everyone was going to be with us. He was now going to be in the world. He was going to be with you and with me. And you can't get away. Matter of fact, that's what I love. Paul says it in Romans a little bit differently. When he starts going on, you know, kind of Romans 8, he starts talking about if God's for you, who can be against you? Well, no one. But he actually ends that, that, that statement with these words. He says, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither fears of today, nor worries of tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Now, usually people just stop there and they understand this love again. They think about God's love as just sort of this outside thing, this thing that's sort of just there and you can't stop his love from loving you. But see how Paul says, well, it's the love of God that is revealed through Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God, even as 1 John would say it, John the disciple would write in 1 John that God is love and it's revealed through Christ. That because he's here and he's present and his birth represented God with us, that he's here. For those of you that know him, he's here. And I, I shared it with last week, I'll end it this way, but this was the statement I made last week, but it just felt so clear to use it again today. The nativity is the good news of great joy and how far God's willing to go to restore our relationship with him, right? For all mankind. That's what the nativity is. I don't know where you're at today, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity to 
to at least investigate the invitation that God is with you, that he came for this purpose, to be with you. And hopefully, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you just need a reminder today. You don't pray to some distant, you know, get it through the heavens. Guys, Advent's a reminder that he is with us. He is our Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father God, we, we bring this moment to you. And we set it apart in prayer because we know that you're present and we know by, the, by your word and just the message of today, it brings us to that place to answer the question, are we going to look at you, Jesus, as the one who closed the gap for us and that we can have eternal life with you if we would believe you, if we would accept you? And so God, today I just present that invitation to our church, to those online, watching later, if that's you, if you're here today, I want to just lead you in a very quick prayer of how you can say, you know what? I need this personal God, the God who came to be with us. I need him. Would you raise your hand if that's you? And I'll lead us in a prayer this morning. For those of you that raised your hand, I'm just going to give you this, this very simple prayer to pray with me and the rest of our church is praying with you. Father God, thank you so much for coming to be with us. Jesus, I accept that you are God's son, the glory of the Father's son, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again so that I could have life in you. Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for coming to be with us. God, for the rest of us today, just be a huge reminder in our heart that as we celebrate the next couple weeks, as we celebrate Advent, as we sing these songs, God, that they would just take a deeper hold in our hearts and we would really, really begin to sing and rejoice because you, Emmanuel, are with us. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.